I want to read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's a text that I've come back to again and again and again that the Lord has used in my life many times. And I'm going to be talking to you the next few weeks about God and culture. How do we truly be in the world but not of it? How do we live as ambassadors to reach the culture around us? It's been on my heart, you know, with voting season uh, recently passed, leading up to the voting thing, you know, all the cultural issues and trends and things come to your forefront. And I don't know, every voting cycle, I'm like reminded how how much of a fallen world and a fallen culture we live within, right? Ooh. And we're a church that wants to see that change. We want to go after revival. And the Lord was just reminding me this week through this passage. He brought me to this passage. And I thought, man, why am I, why am I reading this? Why am I thinking about this passage in light of, you know, making a difference in the world and changing culture? And it occurred to me that that's what this whole passage is all about. And so I want to, I want to read it to you. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Their name means the burning ones. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? Can't you see it? The whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? But the problem was for Isaiah, he couldn't see it until this point. It says, at the sound of their voices... At the sound of their praise, at the sound of their worship, the doorposts and thresholds shook the temple, and the temple was filled with smoke. At the sound of their voices, it was shaken. At the sound of their voices, the place was shaken. The temple of God was shaken. And I read one commentary that said, and don't we have so much more to praise God for than these angels? Because they don't even know His grace. They never fell. They didn't sin. How much more do we have to praise Him for? How much louder should our praise be? And so they're crying out. Isaiah sees this grand vision. And his response was not to jump in and clap and sing and go, Woo, come on my soul. Woo, yeah. This is a great song, guys. His reaction was, verse 5, Woe to me. I am ruined. You ever get ruined by God? It is at once the most terrifying and wonderful thing that could ever happen to you. It's terrifyingly wonderful. He's still in the terrified part. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips 
and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. R.C. Sproul said, the presence of the holy is traumatic for those who are unholy. I remember when my wife and I first got married, we were a month in and she had a dream one night. She was walking through the woods and beautiful day birds are chirping you know she's like a Disney princess in real life so that's like what this that's what I imagine this dream was like for her just oh everything's great everything's fine and Danny she looks down vision zooms into a microscopic level on this fallen log and she sees bacteria and amoeba swimming around and there's a little green snake that size very microscopic swimming around and she heard a voice say it's small but it can destroy and then she woke up I'd been living in this passage about Isaiah 30 where he talks about this wall that's been built up. And God said, because you relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging. And when it breaks, it'll shatter so mercilessly that you won't even be able to get a a shard big enough for scooping coal out of a fire. And then it says in verse 15, and this is the words, Lord, to you, in repentance and rest is your strength. But you, quietness and trust is your strength. Repentance and trust, oh gosh. Repentance and rest is your salvation. Quietness and trust in your strength. But you would have none of it. And I'd read that passage for like a week. And I didn't understand it. I was like, Lord, what is this? What is this? What is this? Help me understand. Show me, God. Show me what this passage is. It's confusing to me. It's confounding. And I love this verse 15, but I don't understand it. And I've been praying that for like a week, reading that passage over and over. We were 21 years old. We'd been married like a month. And she wakes up in the middle of the night. She goes, honey, I had this dream. It was crazy. She woke me up. She's like, what do you think it means? I'm like, I don't know. Go back to bed. Like, leave me alone, right? I was probably pretty grumpy with her. Woke up in the morning. She attacks me, you know? What do you think this means? What is it? What is it? I don't, I don't know. And she said, well, I know sometimes guys struggle with their thought life, so how have you been doing? And I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh. Look, where are the exits? Let's get out of here. And I was like, well, I'm doing pretty, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, I don't struggle like any other man does. What does that mean? What do you mean like other men struggle? What are you talking about? She starts asking me. She starts interrogating me. I was giving her generic answers to try to satisfy her, but not lie, which wasn't working too well. She cornered me. She asked more specific questions. I got frustrated. I said, fine, you want to know? I started confessing to her my thought life since I was 11, the earliest thought I had that was not holy, right? In regards to lust and sexuality and things like that. That was about 10 years of confession. It took me a few hours and I was a broken person. And God showed me what that passage meant. That sin became a wall for you, cracked and bulging. And it was God's grace to break it down. And what I didn't realize is I got a greater vision of who God was that day. But I said, woe to me, God is holy and I am not. You can ask my wife, I couldn't look another female in the eye for like a year or two. I mean, it was, I was a broken person. I did not want to go back. I was ruined. I was ruined. And you know my next thought? Everybody does this. This ain't just me. In fact, one of the reasons I'd never dealt with it is I was always comparing to all my buddies. 
who were very open about what they were going through. And I'm like, I am better than all of them. I do not struggle with all the stuff they struggle with. I don't do it to the degree that they do it. I don't look at porn like most of them on a regular basis. I am good. But I wasn't good. And God showed me. And I had a choice. And I said, this is who I am. And it broke me. But I'm telling you, I went, this is the whole culture. This is the whole culture. I'm a man of unclean eyes and I live among a people of unclean eyes. Oh my dear goodness. That was just the beginning of me getting ruined for God. And so Isaiah sees this vision of God, this whole, his holiness, his nature and the culture of heaven. And his first thought is not how great it is. His first thought is I don't belong there. This is not good. I'm ruined. You know, the longer you walk with God, the closer you get to him, the more even the smallest sins will bother you. The more just a few curse words on the TV will bother you. The more when, you know, you used to look at porn in your former days. Now, if Dancing with the Stars is on and they're in a short dress, you're like, ah, it's porn on TV. You know, run, turn it off bothers you because the presence of the holy is traumatic for those who are unholy and when the holy king of heaven takes up residence in you stuff starts bothering little thoughts the little microscopic thoughts start bothering you and you're like I don't want this in me I don't want to think this way I want to be different and so God ruins him, gives him a vision of heaven. It also, the light of heaven sheds light on his darkness. And then God does this amazing, gracious thing. It says, one of the seraphim flew to me, verse six, with the live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, I want you to notice all that Isaiah did was confess, woe to me. I'm messed up. And God's like, I got you. Total act of grace. Didn't have to work for it. There's no sign that it was even painful for him. Hot coal on your lips, one of the most sensitive parts of your body should have been pretty painful. And yet, he doesn't cry out. He receives it. He's transformed by God's grace the grace to have this vision of heaven the grace to be confronted with his own sinfulness and to bring him to a greater place of humility and then he overhears this conversation with God right after that it's like the angel touches him we assume flies back and they just go right back to the song holy holy and then Isaiah is still standing there in the presence of God and he hears this conversation God says in verse 8 Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I imagine he's talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, maybe Gabriel and Michael. He's like, hey guys, whom should I send? Who could go for us? And Isaiah's like, why am I still here? I I don't know who you're looking for, but my eyes have been opened. I was a man of unclean lips. I see now that the whole culture is a culture of unclean lips. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Send me. And it hit me this week that 
this whole passage <laughs> is about God looking for a person that he can use to bring transformation in the culture because the nation of Israel had completely fallen away. They had become altogether corrupt like all the nations around them. And so God was looking for someone he could use to go make a difference, to go speak into that culture, to be a prophetic voice. And so he starts by giving Isaiah a greater vision of God's nature, his holiness, and a vision of the culture of heaven. It was a setup. Look at your neighbor and tell him it was a setup. It was a setup. God had a purpose. God had a purpose. God had a purpose in giving him this great vision. God had a purpose in traumatizing him (laughs) to purify his heart. And it's so that God had a holy vessel so that when Isaiah goes to reach the culture, he's not going to self-righteously condemn them or judge them, meaning to critically judge them. Because he knows I used to live like y'all. So I know what it's like. And I know when I was doing it, I didn't realize it. And it was only God's grace that woke me up. I'm just an object of grace. And so I, I know that you don't know. And I pray for you all the time. Forgive them, God. They don't know what they're doing. But man, I'm telling you, you still need to repent. <laughs> and so he can preach truth from a place of love to help them know the grace of God but for God to be able to apply grace to someone's life that person has to humble themselves and let him apply the grace open up their heart open up their darkness confess and go I'm a sinner please forgive me God apply the grace of Jesus and what he did on the cross to my life that's the gospel and so God is looking for surrendered vessels to reach the culture in which we live And my bent when talking about the culture is to like diagnose the problems. Like let's talk about how bad the problems are and then let's try to fix it. And if you, if you do it in that order, it's, it's really like secular humanism. Okay. We know we got problems. Let's analyze it. Now let's human people come up with the solutions. And I'm here to tell you today, if we want to see change in our culture, We don't first need to look at all the problems. We first need to get a greater vision of who God is and what the culture of heaven is like because you and I are commissioned to be ambassadors, to represent heaven on this earth. And Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so in other words, we're called to be missionaries to the culture that we're in. Some people are called to go to Africa or Asia or Latin America or other countries or other cultures. But I'm here to tell you, if you were not specifically called to another culture, another nation, another city, then God is calling you right where you are to reach the people around you. One of my friends who's a missionary in Uganda or was a missionary in Uganda for five years, Nathan Metz, He came back to preach at his home church in Indiana on this passage. And he was thinking about how he he talked about in that message how every missionary he's ever known uses this verse, Isaiah 6, 8, to talk about how, you know, here am I, send me God to other nations. 
And he said it was as he was thinking about sharing his story to his home church that he grew up in Indiana, coming from Uganda back to the States, that it hit him. Wait a second. (laughs) God was looking to send someone to Israel. And Isaiah was from Israel. And so when he said, here I am, send me, he was essentially saying, here I am, God, send me to where I am. Some of you are looking for a great calling in life and you think it's going to involve another nation or for it to be important, you have to go somewhere far away. To make a big difference, you have to go to a third world country. No, to make a big difference, you need to get caught up to heaven, have a vision of who God is, let it radically humble you and ruin you. And then when you get transported back to earth and you walk out of this church service and you are looking at life with new eyes, you're going, oh my goodness, everybody is ruined. And and unless they get ruined by the grace of God, they're going to be ruined for eternity. Oh my goodness, everything is different. And so God is calling you to be a missionary, to be an ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5. We, therefore, are his ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us because he is making his appeal through us. And so if you're not called to Africa or Asia, you're called to your own family. Some of you, your own family that you live with in your house are not Christians. And you're called first there to be a missionary to them, an evangelist, a representative, an ambassador of the culture of heaven. To represent the nature of God in yourself, his character, and then to bring the culture of heaven to earth. And so we're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. And so I want to talk to you today about reaching the culture in which we live. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for our time together. I thank you for this awesome, amazing passage. I thank you that you gave Isaiah this vision. I thank you that you ruined him. (laughs) And God, my prayer today is that you would ruin every single person in this room for your glory and every single person watching online. And even if they don't want to be ruined and they're running from you, that you would chase them down and give them a vision of yourself that ruins them. That's our prayer, God. Would you ruin us? Would you ruin our church for your glory? Yes, Jesus. (laughs) Do it, Lord. We love you. Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you guys help me give Wes a hand for for playing? Wes's fingers are probably bleeding by now. I made him do that first service too. If you're new with us, you're thinking right now, was that the intro to the sermon? Yes. Yes, it was. And you made the mistake of coming to second service. So there's no next service, which means I get to preach the full sermon I've prepared. Praise the Lord Jesus. So I want to talk to you about how to reach the culture in which we live um, and be missionaries for God. When, when I was in college, I took a class called Missiology, and I went to Indiana Wesleyan University, but I didn't study Christian ministries. I got a degree in leadership and communications, uh, but I took an elective Missiology, right? I needed to fill my, I didn't, I wasn't passionate about it. I needed to fill my course load. <laughs> and so I took this elective. And missiology is the study of the Christian mission 
um, how to be a missionary 101 is basically what that means. And most often that's applied to going to other cultures that you're not from. And so I remember taking this class and kind of being like, this is really fascinating. So we were talking about how to reach very, very different cultures. And one of the things they talked about is when you go into a culture, especially one that's very different than your own, you need to be very aware of what that culture is like uh, so that you don't start doing things that where you're from are totally fine, but might be super offensive in the culture you're going to. Because if you offend people unnecessarily, they don't trust you. They're not going to listen to you. They won't, they won't hear the gospel from you, right? A quick example of that. Um, when we were doing, we did a few mission trips to Uganda, Africa uh, several years ago. And uh, one of our ladies was on a trip with, with some other people from other churches. And there was an American lady on that trip who was, who was heavier set. And the, one of the Ugandans, while they were on the trip, they were all talking and laughing. And, and, and the Ugandan looked at her and to encourage her, he goes, you're so fat, and he started, they started clapping. I'm sorry, it was a woman. She said, you're so fat. And they started clapping. And all the Ugandan mamas were like, you're so fat. Huh? And this American woman who was quite overweight just burst into tears and like ran out of the room. Well, what you have to understand is in Uganda, who has a history of being a, a less well-off nation and problems with food and things like that, um, if you're a little overweight or a lot over, if you're, if you're overweight in Uganda, it's a sign that you have a job, you have money, you have food, it's like a status symbol, and it's viewed as a good thing. It is not derogatory. So they were saying, like, look at you. You're so well-fed. That's amazing. And so, you know, and they meant it. They were trying to encourage her. She was deeply offended. And so if you're in Uganda, and you're going to be a missionary to America, you need to know that you should not going around calling everyone fat, right? They would be unnecessarily offended by you, and they would probably not listen to the gospel that you have to preach, right? So you understand what I'm saying. You need to study the culture that you're going to, to be able to reach it, right? Paul said, uh, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might possibly save some, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as much as I can, become like the culture that I'm going to, to build bridges. And they talked about that in this missiology class. Like, become like the culture, right? And so what you have to do, they talked about one of the mistakes that, Christians have made through the centuries is, for example, the, the, the uh, like Catholic priest missionaries who came to the Americas to win over the, the native tribes. They didn't just preach the gospel and call them to repentance. They made them change everything. They totally eradicated native culture, right? They're like, you can't wear the deerskin leather. Take that stuff off. Only like linen or cotton, you know, English clothes. Stop speaking your language. Only King's English, you know, like that type of stuff. And um, a lot of, a lot, because of a lot of that, a lot of cultures or cultural um, things throughout history or through the world in different nations have been lost because that was kind of the methodology of Christian missionaries. And I remember they talked about in this class, like, if you do that, you're going to basically do what they talked about in Acts 15. Like, you're making it difficult for people to come to Christ unnecessarily. And so, for example, you know, if you go in, part of the culture is the food, the language, the dress, the, you know, these, the arts and, and whatnot. And you have to be able to delineate what is inherently, like, immoral and what is inherently not immoral? Like, it, it's neutral. You know what I'm saying? And so, for example, if you go into a culture you're trying to reach, they, they eat goats and rice in Uganda, right? We don't eat a lot of goats and rice. But to go in there and be like, hey, no more eating goats and rice. Only 
French fries and hamburgers, if you're going to be a, a Christian, right? That doesn't make it, you're, you're making obstacles that you don't need to make. No, eat the goats and rice, right? You're, you're going to an Amazonian tribe. They wear a loincloth, all right? Now, before you judge them on modesty, what do you wear when you go swimming? Okay, that's what I thought. All right, so let's not judge. So wear the loincloth. Like, I don't care. Maybe cover up a little bit, but wear it. That's fine. Wear the animal skins. Oh, wait, in this culture, they eat people, okay? That is, if you're going to follow Jesus, we don't eat people, okay? Right? Seriously. Oh, in this culture, there's vengeance killings. So you, you took my cow, I killed your brother, now we got to kill his brother, now we got to kill two of your sons, now we're going to kill three of yours. This is like tribal warfare, still happening in our world today. Okay, you come in and you bring the gospel. Hey, no more vengeance killing. God, actually, God says in his word, you know, love and peace, and, and yeah, they wronged you, you need to forgive and, and let God deal with them, right? And so you have to delineate what is neutral territory, and what is things you need to call people to repent from? Is this making sense? I think when it comes to missiology, it is easier to assess that in a culture that you are not from. I've gotten to do mission trips to Guatemala, Uganda, and I went to Mexico on a honeymoon. And when the culture is completely different than what you're used to, you're assessing and analyzing everything, right? But one of the aspects about culture um, is that when you grow up in a culture, you just fit into that culture without even thinking about it. In fact, let me read you one of the definitions of culture um, to help you understand what I'm talking about here. A culture is an entire way of life of a group of people. The behaviors, beliefs, values, religion, food, language, and symbols that they accept. And this part's key. Generally, without thinking about them. Right? So think about this. In, in our culture, in this area, some of you grew up eating sauerkraut, even though it tastes terrible. Let's just be honest. Why do you do that? Let's just say, um, New Year's Day, we're going to have sauerkraut. Why do you have sauerkraut? I, I don't know. We're German or Polish background. Right? Why, why, did, why do you do that? Just not thinking about it. It's just what people do. All right? It's just what people do. Right? How about this one? Some of you later today, you're going to go to Kroger, you're going to be talking, and, and you'll be like, all right, see you later. Yeah, hey, who day? Who day? They'll be like, hey, who day? All right. Watching the game, right? Who day? Try that in California or, or some other state. Hey, who day? Hey, who day? Who day what? Who day? Who are day? Why are you talking? Why do we talk this? It's just the culture. You do it without thinking about it. You're still not with me. I got one more example. You'll get with me on this one. I came across this meme uh, a few years ago about how they dress kids now versus how they dress kids when, when I was growing up. Some of you have probably seen this before. <laughs> the first time I ever saw that, I was like, I almost died of laughter and I sent it to my wife. I was like, look at this. Cause I was like, this is you. Because I've seen the pictures of my in-laws uh, that, that they took while they were growing up. You know, the ones in the shoebox under the bed. You know what I'm talking about? Um, for you young people, we used to print pictures out. 
and now they're in shoe boxes, okay? But I've seen my wife, and she, her and her sister have a lot of pictures that look very similar to that on the right. Like, it's eerie how similar that is. And we, you know, we do kind of dress our kids like this, you know? And any, guys, we don't, we don't care. I laugh too because my mom has pictures under her bed too, and I'm kind of dressed in the boy version of that. Um, and we, but guys, we don't care so much, right? Now, some of you girls... How many of you ladies have seen this meme or you've realized this at some point and you thought to yourself, what was my mom thinking, right? What was she thinking? What was she thinking? She wasn't thinking. Why? Believe it or not, there was no Target where they had somewhat decent, cute clothes. There was Walmart and you went, that's what they had and you bought it and you put it on them and it was the late 80s so you thought that looked good because that was the culture right it was a cultural thing you just fit into it without even thinking about it that's one of the dangerous sneaky aspects of culture and so when you're going to a different culture you easily see all the weird stuff because it's all weird it's all different listen to me but when you grow up in a culture there are so many things you do so many things you say And you don't even think about it. It hit me this week as I was reading one of the commentaries that pointed this out. This is Isaiah chapter 6. Which means he was already a prophet. He was already a man of God. He was already in ministry. He was already speaking into the nation. He's already, you know... A follower of Jesus and going to church, as we would say in our culture. And yet he gets a greater vision of who God is. And he goes, oh, no. (laughs) I'm a man of unclean lips. You can be following Jesus for a while. And still not know all there is to know. And still not know who he fully is. And, And God is gracious. And it's this journey of where he reveals more and more and more of himself. And each time he reveals something new or something greater, it's, you have a choice. Am I going to go higher with him? The higher with him you go, the more of this world you have to leave at the foot of the cross. And so I, I think that Isaiah, already a man of God, already a preacher, I think he had dealt with the major sins in his life. But man, taming that tongue, whew, as difficult, isn't it? Not complaining at all, which is one of the New Testament commands. Never complaining ever about anything. Oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. <laughs> and he realizes it. And then he goes, our whole culture is living this way. American people, we need to live in the scriptures We need to seek encounters with the Holy Spirit to have a greater vision of who God is if we want to see revival in this nation. Because the truth is, so many American Christians talk about revival in the nation, but the truth is we do a whole lot of things that are just like the culture around us, and we do it without even thinking about it because it's just part of our culture. 
And we just, because so many other people are so much worse than us, then we think it's okay. We think we're not that bad. But for revival to come to a culture, it first has to come to God's people who are his representatives of heaven on earth. So God had, it was a setup. God had a purpose. I'm going to ruin this man (laughs) who's already mine. I've been in a few other moments of my life where God's ruining me in a greater way. And I'm like, what are you doing to me? I'm like crying to him, complaining to him. It's legal to complain to God, by the way. Don't complain to other people. Complain to him. And I've been complaining to him before. And the Holy Spirit has said to me before more than once, you said yes. I get to do what I want. I'm going to ruin you. (laughs) But when you realize how brief this life is, you don't mind being ruined for him. And so, for revival to come in the nation, it's first got to come in us. I like what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. It's talking about the ways of life of the culture around you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is why one of the best ways, if you're struggling with knowing God's will on a big decision, and you're, you're like, he's not speaking to me. One of the best things you can do is fast and pray. Like, do a fast of some sort. Why? Disconnect with the things of the world. Perhaps you're not discerning his will because you keep filtering the possibilities through what you think is acceptable or what you want to do with your life. (laughs) But to know God's will, it starts by laying your life on the altar. All bets are off. I'll do whatever you want. Now what's your will? I'm still not getting it. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek you. Oh, okay. Whoa. Get your mind renewed. Get in the word of God. The NLT version says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The message paraphrase version says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. So the scriptures are telling us, God knows what a temptation it is to grow up in a culture and just do what everyone else is doing around you and you get five years down the road and go, oh, this is bad. I should not be living this way. You know, there's this pattern, speaking of, in American culture where people grow up in church, they go to college or they, the college years, they fall away, they live a party, they do what they, party lifestyle, do what they want, they get married, still, we're partying together, everything's hunky-dory and, and great, hey, and then guess what? They start having kids, and then it smacks them in the face. Would I want my kids living this way? Shoot. Wake-up call, and then you see them come to church for the first time in 10 years. Isn't that amazing? Hey, I'm not judging it, and if you're here today and that's you, I'm not judging you. That's, that's kind of my story, but God condensed it <laughs> to a couple years. Praise the Lord. I thank him for it. He ruined me when I was 20. <laughs> He saved me a lot of years of heartache. I thought that was hard when I was 20, but man, he saved me decades of heartache. 
to learn the long, slow, hard way, right? But man, that's the pattern we see in America so often. God knows what a temptation it is to just fit into the culture around you and, and just do what, what everybody else is doing and then justify it and then go to church, read your Bible and see the Bible says the exact opposite thing and still justify it in your heart and still keep living that way. And that's what so many American Christians do because it's so hard to assess your own culture when you grow up in it. And so God wants us to renew our minds. Don't just do what everyone else is doing. Stop, you know, read the scriptures, renew your mind with what God says, with God's word, with how he wants us to live. And then from that place, you're probably going to be ruined just by that. You're probably going to realize, if I were to actually live how this book says, I'm going to be weird to everyone. I'm going to be doing my finances different. I'm going to be doing raising kids different. I'm going to be the annoying one that, can they have a sleepover? Do you guys allow your kids to have phones without internet access? Sorry, got to ask that. Because my kids don't sleep over people's houses do that. So got to have an awkward conversation now. Why? Because handing them a loaded phone with internet access is like handing them a loaded gun, spiritually speaking. You're handing them portals to hell and demons getting attachments in their hearts and minds. So yeah, you're going to be weird if you take this book seriously. But you'll be blessed. And so that'll ruin you. Now it's decision time. Now we've got hard decisions to make and start changing your life based on what you read in this book. Um, You've heard me say this story before, um, but... It illustrates well. So there were two young punk goldfish swimming along. And they passed an older grizzled veteran goldfish swimming the other way. And the older goldfish looks at them and says, hey, fellas, how's the water? And they just kind of look at each other like, that guy's weird. Keep swimming. They get out of earshot. And finally, one of them looks at the other and says, this guy, what the heck is water? (laughs) Because when you grow up in it, you don't even see it. And so I just want to help you see some of the water of America. Some of what we've grown up in that's affecting how you think and even how you, the lens, the water (laughs) that you're reading scripture through when you read it. I'm going to try to be brief. But books have been written about this. And what I'm about to say, very briefly, if you're a skeptic, you're like, what's the quote, the study? Go Google it, and you'll find many secular historians all saying the same thing. So there was a major cultural sexual revolution in the 1960s. Major. Secular religious historians all agree this was a major cultural shift. And there was a whole lot going on at that time that, that contributed to it. But it was free love, free sex, basically throw off the boundaries of religion and societal norms. By the way, drug use became rampant. What are, what are the biggest problems in our culture right now, culturally speaking? I think you could boil it down to sexual immorality and, and drug use. <laughs> 
And so this all kind of started in American culture in the 1960s. Free love, free sex, right? And then the feminist movement was rising. So like men get to do whatever they want, but we get pregnant and we have to take responsibility. And we, well, we want to be free too. And what do you know? Right at the same time, contraceptives, birth control was invented and came out. And hey, awesome. And then abortion got uh, legalized. And so it, it, it had the, uh, it was a deceptive thing, but it made it seem like there's no consequences for these actions now. Now everyone can do what they want sexually. Sigmund Freud and others in the 40s, 50s were, were speaking ideologies of like, no, this is why people aren't happy. You'll be happy if you just do whatever you want. And we know now, according to many, many, many scientific studies of psychology and sociology, that nothing is further from the truth. So everybody does it. What were some of the consequences of that? Well, prior to 1960, there were two major STDs gonorrhea and syphilis. Now, there are over 25. Uh, the AIDS epidemic, if you grew up in the 80s, you rem- that was just discovered in 1981, by the way, and is still raging throughout the earth today. By the way, do you know how many STDs you'll get if you're a virgin and your partner's a virgin until you get married? Do you know how many? Zero. You won't get any. Scientifically proven. Isn't that interesting? But if you sleep with someone, you're sleeping with Also, you're exchanging fluids, DNA, with everyone they've ever slept with and everyone they've ever slept with and everyone they've ever slept with and everyone they've ever... That's scientifically proven, by the way. And it's almost as if consequences are wired into immoral behavior. Almost as if that's how it works. I'm just observing the science. So, abortion legalized, Roe v. Wade, 73. Since 1973, over 63 million abortions. Praise the Lord Jesus that was recently overturned. We can celebrate that today. But abortion's still legal. You know, California today, I'm getting ahead of myself, they, have a, they had a bill to legalize not just abortion, but abortion up to 28 days after you've had the child. Uh, you, hey, I know since it's like your body and everything and your choice, let's make it legal. You know, maybe you're emotional and you're not sure until after the baby's born, right? Let's make it legal until that child is up to a month old. You can still choose to kill that child. That's going on today. I think we can trace the roots of that back to the 1960s and what was going on there and the the cultural revolution that took place. And so this all started in the 60s, this huge revolution. Um, what that has culminated is the kids growing up in that, my parents grew up in that era. So really, I'm, I'm a millennial, but I'm like the oldest millennial. I'm really kind of more of a Gen Xer in how I grew up, the mindset of my parents and everything and who they were. They were boomers. And so, um, but... The kids who, who grew up with those, that generation as their parents severely devalue as a result marriage. So marriage is devalued because everyone's free to do what they want. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. Just be safe, wear a condom, it's fine. They don't make a condom for soul trauma, by the way. 
and it's traumatic. Man, what was that stat I read? Young ladies who have premarital sex um, are, I'll just say, many more times as likely to have suicidal thoughts, depression, and anxiety than those who don't. Because it's traumatic when you have sex with someone, you join your soul with them, and then you just break up and treat it casual and move on. And men are less emotional, stereotypically, because men and women are different biologically, not only in our sex organs, but the chemicals that flow through our bodies, and that affects our brains. And so men are uh, less emotional in a sense, stereotypically. So young men sleep around and just move on and act like it's no big deal and leave a train wreckage of young women in their wake who have depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety as a result. There are consequences to how you live. And so this was all going on in the 60s. So now our generation, the current generation, um, my generation really, growing up with those parents, it's taken a step further, so to speak, if that makes sense. Um, so now, and so where are we at today? That's the picture I'm trying to, to paint and get to. Um, you may not be aware of this, but there's been another major cultural shift. We're in the midst of another 1960s type of cultural revolution. And it's from the far liberal left. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be political when I say that. I'm saying in the way we judge morality in social issues. Okay? Um, and that's the revolution that's taking place. What do I mean by that? Um, each generation kind of stands on the shoulders of the generation before it. And so our genera- the current generation, uh, just, just some statistics, in the 2010s, so like just five, five to seven years ago, um, for the first time ever in American history, we had more people co- cohabiting, cohabitating, uh, living together, not married, than were married. And so currently, present day, um, 59% of Americans have lived together with a partner, and only 50% have ever been married, ever. So a massive devaluing of marriage. F- currently, 43% of children in America are born outside of marriage. That's the most in our history. In other words, we're living in the most fatherless generation in our nation's history. Now, if you're new to church, new to God, or you're not aware of sociological studies and things like that, you might be thinking, big deal. Yeah, this is the culture we live in. Big deal. I I think it's a good thing. People have more choices. It's fine. Whatever. Except that it has been proven through history, um, but also through many societal studies, that when you have children growing up, in non-nuclear unit homes, homes without both parents, especially fatherless homes, it's really, really bad, not only for those children, but for society at large. For example, over 90% of uh, men in prison come from fatherless homes. 90% of runaway children grew up in fatherless homes. 80% of rapists diagnosed with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 63% of juvenile suicides are committed by kids who come from fatherless homes. Are you getting why? You see, see, God designed people. 
God designed marriage, God, and marriage, society is built on marriage. This is all God's design. So whether you believe in God or not, if you go against his design, bad things are going to happen. It's like running a car on, on water or trying to. It's like pouring water in your gas tank and expecting that thing to go. That's not how it's designed to go. And our culture right now is so deceived. They think we're so free. Everybody do what you want. But there will be consequences in society. And we're already beginning to see them. Another sign that there's been a major cultural shift. When I was growing up, one, maybe 2% of the general population um, were gay, transgender, LGBT, right? And back then it was, it was like gay. We didn't really even talk about transgender. It was like LG, right? There was no really BT talk, right? And it was like 1% of the population. Now we have LGBT plus, and a lot of that plus is, well, I go both ways. Well, in the 60s, that was called swinging, right? Or bisexual, and it was viewed as a taboo, immoral thing. And, and we're, we're making up things on the plus side, and we're having children who are, who are thinking they're animals, believing they're animals, right? In schools, furries, they're acting like, oh, I identify as a cat or whatever. The definition of marriage was changed in 2015 and it was legalized. Why is that a big deal? Well, once you take away God's definition, and we're, I would say you're going to start seeing this. We're already seeing people who are saying, well, I'm attracted to children. Why can't I marry a child? Why can't I just have a partner that's a child if they're consenting? That's where it's going. And so, I know a lot of you know this, and I know you're upset by it. Can't we just talk about the holiness of God? But there's some people here who, it's the water you've grown up in, so you think there's nothing wrong with it. And then you read your Bible through that lens, and you go, well, culture's changed. I guess it's all fine. I don't know. So when I was growing up, one, one, around 1, maybe 2% of people were uh, LGBT. Um, now, in c- culturally speaking, about sev- over 7% of people are actually that or identify as that. But <laughs> when they, this is a Gallup poll, recent Gallup poll, trustworthy source. When they surveyed the youngest generation, the Gen Z, or whatever they call them, right? Like my kids' generation. The young people of this church. Over 20% of them are saying that they identify as LGBT+. We, we just need to be aware of the culture that we're going to try to reach. And... We first need to know what, man, it's hard to speak to such a diverse group. Because we first need to know what God's word says about these issues. And there's some people here, maybe some of the young people especially, who you don't even know what God's word says, or you're being told by your peers or pastors on the internet that, well, it says this, but God made you that way, and it's fine. And I'm just telling you, when you read the Bible honestly, that is not the truth. Amen. They are twisting God's word. God's standards have not changed. That's right. 
And so you have to know what God's word says first and foremost about those issues in order to reach the culture. You got to have a vision of what heaven culture looks like to live it out on earth. But then comes the question, okay, so if you know the truth and it's different than the way people are living, and if those people tend to get deeply offended, <laughs> if you bring it up or, or if it just comes up, and they, or if they ask you what you think, and you're like, well, I think it's a sin. You know, every, pretty much every time I've preached on this, get hate mail or bad reviews, right? There are some churches now in our culture who have to have security because if a pastor says this is immoral behavior, just saying that. Not like, I hate you, not you're, you're a scumbag of the earth. And, you know, no, 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 no. Just saying, this is what God's word says. Get death threats. Churches get vandalized. Are you tracking with me? Right? And I want to be careful. We have to have a nuanced view as Christians. You can't paint a us and them. Because the whole LGBT community, most of them would probably condemn that type of behavior. That's, they would point at us and go, and some of your people have bombed abortion clinics. Are you tracking with me? There's a political spirit. Man, whew, Jesus. There's a political spirit that is us and them. And I see a lot of Christians participating with it in our culture. And it's not helpful in reaching people. And so how do you treat someone who lives that way? How do, what do you do when you find out one of your kids or a family member or so on says they're LGBT or, or you name it, they got an abortion or whatever, or they're just arguing with you about it because they disagree. What, what do you do? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. What to do, how to live it out. Today we're talking about the culture of heaven, okay? The culture of heaven. What does it look like? And so we need to be aware of how our culture differs from the culture of heaven. And the point that I'm making is, you know... <sighs> The younger generation is just buying the far-left liberal agenda hook, line, and sinker. And it's not good. Amen. We're already starting to see the wave of, of kids who got a transgender surgery. And then when their brain is fully developed, because for uh, most people it's like 20, 22 years old. After their brain is fully developed, and they're an adult, and they go... Well, I don't feel that way now. Or, or more common, um, I got the surgery, I got the hormones, and I'm still feel trapped in the wrong body. It didn't work, and now I've cut off a very sensitive part of my body that I can't put back on. And there's no going back. There's no surgery to fix that. And so, there's consequences. And I don't preach on this stuff to be political. I preach on it because these are moral issues. I preach on it because some of you and some of your children are thinking, I might just sleep with someone I like. There's no consequences. And if we did happen to get pregnant, I could always get an abortion. It's no big deal. It's my choice. And I'm telling you, that is not what God's word says. And so we need to be aware of these things. This is the water of the culture that we are living, living in. And so, <sighs> Isaiah gets this vision of God, and he's ruined. 
I'm unclean, unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. God's preparing him to reach the culture. And I discovered this week that there's a connection to what he meant by that and to our culture today. I love how relevant the Bible is without trying to make it relevant. What did he mean by, I live among a people of unclean lips? I think one of, when you consider what God was judging the nation of Israel for in his generation, which was idolatry, I think it had something to do with that. In Exodus chapter 23 verse 13, God said, Be careful to do everything that I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. This is at the very, think about this. The culture that God is calling Isaiah to change and transform is a culture that God created. God set up a whole nation. He defined the whole culture, their religious holidays, their practices, their civil laws. God made it all up. God created this culture. But they get to Isaiah's generation and the culture's so corrupt because they've totally fallen away from the culture that God called them to have. And God knew one of the biggest temptations that would lead them away from the culture of God, which I think we could call the culture of heaven on earth, is the temptation to just fit in with the cultures around them. The other nations who worshipped other gods. Now, let me show this to you. He says, don't even let their names be heard on your lips. To invoke the name of another god was to worship that god. To invoke that spiritual power. Just like we say when we pray, in the name of Jesus. You know, we're invoking the name above all names. And it is powerful, right? Well, Paul says that idol worship is demonic. When you worship idols, you're actually worshiping demons. Now, the Old Testament's pretty quiet about demonology. And we find out a lot more about it in the New Testament in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, we are called to cast out demons. Demons are a very real thing. Thank God we have a ministry team that is able to cast out demons. And we have cast out demons before. It's a very real thing. And so we know now in our culture that when you invoke a false god, the name of a demon, when you mess with tarot cards or psychics or new age or occultism, When you mess with demons, you give them access to your life. And there's spiritual power in it, but it's evil power. And so you might have a spirit guide, or they might make you give you answers or speak to you, and you think it's a good thing, but they're given to you with one hand, but they're taken from you with the other, and they're causing the depression and the anxiety and the suicidal thoughts in your life too. They don't let you know that, right? You don't think it's connected. That's how that works. They use you. Now, we know all that. Now, God had not unpacked that yet for all of his people. He just said, hey, listen, stay away from these false gods. Because these false gods, you have to understand, um, Paul says these are demons. So demons, when people sin or explicitly worship them, they get more power. They get more influence, right? And they pull us further away from God. And they thwart God's purposes on the earth. And so, not only do they tempt people to do wrong, but in this culture, in, these, in, this, in the biblical age, um, they created false gods, the names of false gods, to get to compare to Yahweh, right? 
to get people to to make people think no these gods here they're the same as Yahweh but they're better so worship these gods and do what they want because they knew that they could tempt people and get people to do that and get more power from a seemingly good thing which was called idolatry so God says don't even invoke their names on your lips Deuteronomy 18, he says it this way. When you enter the land the Lord God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcrafts, casts spells, who's a medium or spiritism, uh, or, or does spiritism, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive you out of those nations before you. Deuteronomy 9 verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God's saying, it's not because you're so righteous, they're so wicked. Their wickedness was tied to their idolatry and their false gods. In fact, we know in 2 Kings, many generations later, when God is allowing a foreign power to conquer his people, the nation he started because they're so corrupt, he says this, 2 Kings 17, 7 and 8. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the same power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped all their gods, followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. In other words, the reason God allowed the captivity and destruction of Israel as a nation was because they bought into the cultures around them and they worshipped other gods. I talked about it last week, but the essence of idolatry is not atheism. It is, I worship God, but I'm also just going to do everything the culture is doing. I'm going to worship all these other things that are wrong and sinful that God says to stay away from. And God's like, that's idolatry. You can't mix the things of the world with Jesus, right? So who were the gods of these other nations that they were invoking and taking on their lips? There's several mentioned in the Old Testament. Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech are three of the top ones. What's interesting about the pantheon of the Canaanite gods, you've probably heard of Zeus and Aphrodite and and the Greek gods, anybody? That's the Greek pantheon of gods. (laughs) These are actually the fallen angels that, w- that fell with Satan who, took on, who gave themselves different names in different cultures to get people to worship them. The Canaanite culture preceded the Greek culture and scholars say they're the same exact gods. They just gave them a new name. So Baal became Zeus when the Greeks took over. Ashtoreth became Aphrodite when the Greeks took over. Are you tracking with me? So, so it's the same demons... They're just, it's a new name, it's a new nation, same game. Why is this important? Why do I feel led to explain all this to you? (laughs) On Monday morning, I woke up out of nowhere, this past Monday, and a phrase popped into my mind. Phoenician, ritual, sex, act. Okay. Never heard that phrase. I knew the Phoenicians were a culture of people in the Middle East. That's about all I knew. What is that? Ritual sex act. I don't know. So I Google it. 
several of the first articles. The Phoenicians were the people uh, that preceded the Canaanites. They were from the same area as, the, as Canaan. They were preceded by the Mesopotamians. Ritual sex is when um, you have shrine prostitution at the temple. Now, this search led me to uh, a Greek historian from the 5th century BC, Herodotus, who describes what he calls the phallus custom of the Babylonians, and it's the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. Okay? You have to realize, and this is so fascinating, the Phoenician goddess was Ishtar. Ishtar became uh, Aphrodite eventually. Ishtar became, sorry, Ashtoreth of the Canaanites, and Ashtoreth became Aphrodite. So 5th century BC is after the Canaanites, after the people of, of the Bible times. It's the Greek culture now, and it's Aphrodite, but it's the same goddess. I would propose to you it's the same fallen angel principality. And by the way, I'm going somewhere with this, and I'm going to connect it to our culture today. So stay with me. This is Herodotus from the 5th century. The phallus Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger at least once in her life. Many women who are rich and proud and disdain to mingle with the rest drive to the temple in covered carriages drawn by teams and stand there with great retinue of attendants. But most sit down in the sacred plot of Aphrodite with crowns of cord on their heads, there is a great multitude of women coming and going, passages marked by line run every way through the crowd by which men pass and make their choice. Once a woman has taken her place there, she does not go away to her home before some stranger has cast money into her lap and had intercourse with her outside the temple. But while he casts the money, he must say, I invite you in the name of Mylita. It does not matter what the sum of money is. The woman will never refuse for that would be a sin. The money being by this act made sacred. So she follows the first man who casts it and rejects no one. After their intercourse, having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess, she goes away to her home. Everyone did this. Every single young woman in the culture had at some point to go to the temple and wait to be picked by a random man who would give her money, she could not refuse, and then she would either have intercourse with him or be raped by him. Are you tracking with me? This whole culture is this defiled. Can you imagine from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, the mindset it would create in this culture of the devaluing of sexuality, the devaluing of marriage? Because once you get married, you've already been defiled with someone else. Now, what's interesting is there's another God called Molech in the same pantheon. In other words, same time frame, right? And so, what was Molech? He was a God of fertility and other things as well. But he was a bull, bronze bull statue that had his arms out with a little pan on his arms. And he required child sacrifice. So, so Ishtar, Ashtoreth in the Bible... They required this ritual sex at the temple. 
Molech required child sacrifice. You must sacrifice one of your children, one that's already been born. Lay it on this thing. They'll start a fire under those bronze arms. It'll get so hot that it kills the child. Listen, same pantheon, same culture. These are the gods of the Canaanites. And God's saying, yeah, it's not because you're so great that I'm giving you this land. He could have given them any land. Those nations are so corrupt and evil. I need to get them out. I need to stop this evil on the earth. And so I'm going to have you go in and take over. But when you go in, do not marry with them. Why? You'll be tempted to worship their gods, to please the, the wives that you marry. Do not become like them. Why? Because you'll take on their idolatries. And that's exactly what they did. And we have accounts in the Old Testament of scripture that the Israelites got to a place where they were doing all of this. They were sacrificing their children in the fire. Isn't that crazy? Now think about this. <laughs> A devaluing of sexuality, a devaluing of marriage, promiscuity, who cares? We all have to do it, whatever. Now you have another God who requires child sacrifice. Well, which child are you going to sacrifice? How about the one that you got pregnant with when you got raped at the temple? Right? I didn't enjoy that process. I got a kid out of it that I didn't enjoy. I'll sacrifice that one. And so the demon gods are compounding and working with one another. Are you, are you tracking with me? So let me summarize it by, this, by saying this. This, by the way, was the culture that Isaiah was living in. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live, I'm a man of idolatry and I live among a people of idolatry. God's people are doing these things. A culture that devalued marriage, valued sexual promiscuity, which caused a devaluing of human life. Now, I woke up Friday morning with another phrase that popped into my head. Out of nowhere. Wasn't, I just woke up and boom, heard it in my spirit. Same demon, new name, new nation, same game. Demons don't die yet. See, we think the Bible's so archaic and it doesn't apply to us because we only live 80 to 100 years and it's so old. These cultures are so old. The same demons that were on the earth at this time are still here. Same demon, new name, new nation, same game. They started in Mesopotamia and it was Inanna the goddess of fertility, who had required the same type of sexual worship. And Anna became Ishtar of the Phoenicians. Ishtar became Ashtoreth of the Canaanites. Ashtoreth became Aphrodite of the Greeks. Same demon. New name, new nation, same game. And you can trace each one of those gods down through the ages. Now, these are false gods. They're demons. They're still here. They're still messing with people. And we live in America where we think we don't go to a temple and worship Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech. So this isn't relevant to us. We don't do this. Our idolatry is actually even before the most ancient forms. Our idolatry goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. 
the original temptation. He said, what did he tempt them with? Can you really not? Oh, you'll die. No, you won't die. The lie. There's no consequences. You can be like God. The original temptation of Satan himself. You can be your own God. You can establish your own morality. You get to decide. The individual establishes morality. That's moral relativism. God is absolute truth. He is the standard of morality. Moral relativism is the individual is the standard. You get to choose. You get to decide. Did you know? Listen. Same demon. New name. New nation. Same game. Did you know that the church of Satan in our day and age does not actually believe Satan exists? They say, you and I are gods. We are our own gods, and Satan's not really real. When I learned that several years ago, I thought, that's perfect. That is exactly what he teaches. (laughs) Oh, I'm just a little critter in the garden. You don't have to listen to me, but let me suggest something. You can be your own god. All right, see you later. You get to decide. And he's still doing the same thing today. And America is under the spell. (sighs) We have idolatry of self. And so, we don't live sexually how God calls us to live. There's a devaluing of marriage. More people have lived with someone they're not married to than are actually married. Promiscuity is rampant. And where there's a devaluing of marriage, a devaluing of sexuality, there's a connection and there's a devaluing of human life. Why? Because that takes away the consequence, so you think. It's the same game. It's the same stuff. And our God says, come out from them and be separate. Come out from them and be separate. And so American idolatry is idolatry of self. You can be your own God. You can live however you want. And so many Christians are buying into that same thing. We're picking and choosing the the parts of the scripture that we like, and we're, we're sending the rest back. But what is the true gospel? What does it say? It says, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What was a cross? It was an instrument to crucify sin. It was self-denial. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he did it for us. So deny your selfishness and deny your sinful desires. To follow Jesus. And we get saved when we confess him as Lord. Which means master. Which means God. When we get saved. We're supposed to get baptized in water. Peter says that that baptism is a pledge of your good conscience towards him. What does it mean that you pledge your conscience to him? Well Jesus you're my Lord. And so I'm not going to live how I want to live anymore. In light of your grace. In view of God's mercy. I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice. Holy, holy and acceptable to you. In, in light of your grace that I deserved hell and you forgave me, I'm going to live how you want me to live. 
That's what it means to live with him as your Lord. You pledge your conscience to him, which means as far as it depends on me, I'm going to do my best to live how you want me to live. And if I stumble and make a mistake, I will confess that, get right with you, and keep going. That's what that means. But to say that certain lifestyles are okay with God, when clearly in Scripture it says they're not, what does that mean? What consequence is there for that? <sighs> scripture actually talks about it. Hebrews 10, 26-31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth. Notice the phraseology. Deliberately, not a mistake you stumbled into. You deliberately keep on sinning. After you've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Listen to this. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that has sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. First John 1, 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Why do I have to explain it that clearly? Because of the progressive Christianity, the woke pastors, because when your children and my children and the young people of this church, people in their 20s go, I don't know, I think I might be gay or transgender. And you know what? I, I Googled it and this pastor over here says, that's totally fine. Read your Bibles and read them for what they say. That is not culture of heaven. Our sexuality has to do with identity and it has to do with morality. And God's moral standards have not changed. So Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf and he set aside the Israelite civil and ceremonial law. But he calls us to live by his grace according to his moral code. In other words, the moment you become a Christian... Does, can you start lying and killing people now? It's all grace. He'll forgive us. I can do whatever I want. No. How much more when it comes to our bodies and our sexuality? What does the scripture say? <laughs> Hebrews thirteen four. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. That's new covenant. That's under Jesus. Marriage should be honored. How do we define marriage? Jesus defined it in Matthew 19. They asked him about divorce. And he said, have you not read? Don't you guys know your Bibles? That was Jesus' answer. Haven't you read that in the beginning, God made them male and female? Two genders, male and female. And for this reason... Because of God's design in sexual and gender, a man, Greek word biological male, shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, Greek word biological female, and the two shall become what flesh, the parts fit together. Jesus, God's word, unmistakably clear, cover to cover, on gender and sexuality, and 
sexuality is permissible only within the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. And the skeptics that try to tear that down, what about polygamy? God never condoned it in scripture. And when he did speak on it, he only condemned it. And that's consistent cover to cover. So what does it go on to say? Flee from sexual immorality. Your bodies are not your own. You've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If you read this in the King James, there's three different words listed for um, sexually immoral people. Adulterers is one, which is obviously when you're unfaithful to your spouse. There's one that's listed that means it's translated in King James, catamite, which is the receiving partner in a male homosexual relationship. It's, It's referring, though, to pedastery which was a common practice in the Roman era where a man, it also speaks to pedophilia, by the way, a man was training up a younger boy, Roman soldier, but he would violate him sexually. And that was common practice back then. And so what some of the modern progressive preachers are saying is, well, when it comes to homosexuality, um, he's really prohibiting pedastry and rape and these non-consensual practices. Well, what's interesting is in this passage, Paul breaks it out, and he mentions the word catamite, which refers to that practice, and then he mentions the, the other Greek word, which basically just means a man who sleeps with another man. General homosexuality. So in other words, Paul points it out so, he, he knew that that might be the argument, so he breaks it out specifically and names each of these practices specifically so that there would be no doubt. Another thing modern progressives will say, Christians, progressive Christians, Jesus never spoke on it. Yes, he did. He spoke against sexual immorality. The Greek word's pornea. It means all forms. And if Jesus causes one of his people by his Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write in 1 Corinthians 6, <sighs> that breaks out it specifically, then the scripture cannot be set aside as Jesus said. And so if you want more info on all that, um, there's a lot more to that. Uh, When you dive into the Greek words and just email me and I can send you a podcast on the details of that. And I realize for some of you where you're like, we get it, it's wrong. But I'm telling you, This is the level of deception that the young people are under because of the progressive Christians. I was going to show you a video today and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me. But it was of a church, a mainline Christian denomination church in October of this year um, that has a young man who happens to be homosexual, who's uh, going to be a, he's going to seminary to be ordained in their denomination uh, as a pastor. But he also dresses up as a drag queen. And they had him lead the service and preach as a drag queen. 
And uh, they had a portion of the service where they brought the children up and had them do Q&A to to show them, you know, we don't want to be transphobic or drag queen phobia or gay phobia or whatever. Um, And by the way, I'm not either. If you're gay or you know people that are, let's be friends. I'll hang out. Let's talk. That's not what this is about. Um, This is about the water of the culture we live in and knowing God's word and the culture of heaven and what we're calling people to. And that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to leave behind the old lifestyle. You see, we have so many Christian churches, and there's degrees of it, who want to reach the culture by being like the culture, and apparently this is one of them. And then they get to the end of this interview, this young man's wearing a drag outfit that would be inappropriate for any woman to wear in this church today. I'm talking cleavage and a cut up to here. And and they think it's okay. And then the pastor quotes Romans 12 and says, well, you know, God says don't conform to the pattern of this world. So, kids, we need to think, renew our minds. That means think differently and accept things like this. And I'm telling you, if you're a parent in the room today, that is what, when young people get on the Internet, when you're not vigilant about training up your own children and doing what scripture says, which is to talk about God's word in Deuteronomy, it says talk about it when you sit, when you rise, when you lay down, when you go, always talking about God. Talk about cultural issues and talk about what God's word says. Train them up in it. And if you're not vigilant about it, if you're silent, guess what? The world is discipling your children. And they, they will get curious. They will Google And they will read accounts. There's hundreds, there's thousands now of progressive, liberal, Christian pastors who are saying, and that's great. And that's fine. And God's okay with it. And that's not scripture. And God's word says he'll judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now again, I don't want anyone to feel excess shame. I'm not talking about, oh, we we got tempted, we made a mistake last night. No, no, no. Repent. Known practice sin. You know it's sin, but you keep living in it. And so God's word is unmistakably clear. I mean, I've got like five other scriptures that talk about sexual morality from the New Testament and how we're supposed to stay away from it. You need to read the Bible for what it is and not listen to people who just want to tell you what you want to hear so that your life is easier. Because it's easier in American culture to just go with the flow and say, well, I think it's fine, whatever. It doesn't matter what I think. And I'll just be the first one to tell you, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. (sighs) We need to know what God's word says. And we need to have a greater encounter with this Holy Spirit. And it's not either or, it's a both hand. I praise God that there are testimonies as well coming out now of many LGBT people who've had radical encounters with the Holy Spirit. And the testimonies, I mean, many of them, like, I went to church, I was like, oh my goodness, God's real, this is all true, I'm wrong, and I need to repent and get right with Jesus. I mean, that's how it's going. God just, boom. The Holy Spirit's not divided. And so if we have those types of testimonies, how can that be true? And these other people going, "Eh, God's okay with it. 
It's fine. Just keep living that way. Are you tracking with me? So, it's sobering. We need to be sober-minded. We need to stay awake and stay alert. Because in the end, there will be a great deception. Even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. That's how bad it will be. And so we need to have the unaltered word of God as our standard of truth, which helps us discern right from wrong and to know how to live in this culture. So that's the water we're living in. We need a greater vision of God. Amen. So I'm going to pray. Next week we're going to talk about what do we do with it? How do we live it out? And especially how do we interact with these people who don't agree or are already living differently than what God says? Let's pray. God, I just pray right now that you would give us a greater vision of who you are, a greater vision of your Holy Spirit. God, it's not lost to me that this was an act of grace on your part. It's all grace. We wouldn't have your word unless you had caused yourself to be known, unless you had interacted with people through history and had them write it down. We wouldn't be in this room if that hadn't happened from generation to generation. So you revealing yourself is all grace. Encounters with you are all grace. Going to church and hearing someone preach your word is grace. (laughs) And so God, I thank you for saving a sinner like me. (sighs) When I was lost, when I was a wretch, (sighs) you found me and you saved me. You opened my eyes and now I'm ruined for you. And I pray for people in this culture who are so lost, who are so deceived, who don't know you. I pray you would forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. I pray that you would help us to live humbly and to love them well, but to speak truth in love when you call for it, that they might turn and be saved, God. Holy Spirit, come. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.